There's an oligopoly that's controlled the telecommunications industry in most of the world since its inception. But it's incredible what happens when you step out of the territory that they control and give people access to phones and to the internet. I just had an amazing conversation with Mickey Watkins, the CEO, founder of World Mobile. We talked about what happened when they simply brought the basics of this technology into a village in Zanzibar and what that can mean for the rest of the world. This is an inspired conversation that you do not want to miss. That's dope. Just for anyone's watching, uh, we we recorded 15 minutes of this without recording. <laughs> so I want to offer some context as to how you and I met and how this conversation started. I was sitting at the Waldorf Astoria in Dubai at the Satoshi Roundtable, met these two nice gentlemen randomly sitting on the couch, and they told me an incredible story about a fishing village in Zanzibar. I was blown away and I said, I need to hear more. And they said, we're not the guys to tell you this story. Let me call Mickey. Right. So they called you down and instantly we became fast friends and you expanded on this incredible story. So I'd just like you first to share that story with, with everybody. Okay. Awesome. Um, so yeah, this, this is a really nice story. This was kind of the, the catalyst to, to me pushing all the effort to make a world mobile grow. So we needed to test out some of the equipment that we'd made. Um, in theory, it worked. I'd been working in the African continent and the Asian continent for a long time in, uh, underserved and unconnected areas. So we kind of knew it would work, but we wanted to see the impact. So in mid-2019, we decided that we'd put these things called air nodes, and I'll explain what an air node is later, um, in, in a village, uh, two air nodes, one either side. So this village was was by the sea, uh, houses on built on stilts, um, and very, very remote and took a long time to get to, but close enough for us to be able to support uh, in this initial proof of concept. So we put one anode at the top of the, the, the village and one anode by the sea in the village. These anodes um, are on poles. They had solar panels uh, to keep the, the power there because there's very little infrastructure. They had street lights because we understood that in the equator it gets dark very early and we thought you know, for $20 on, on each anode, this is a, a worthy thing to do. Underneath they had um, the, the CPE, so that's the, the Wi-Fi unit. Then they were plugged in via fiber. And then underneath that they had um, second life batteries to support when the sun's gone in so that people could still have the power to charge their devices. So we figured that this was going to make a real difference to the village, but we didn't know how much. And then to 2019, uh, everybody knows about it, COVID hit. Uh, we weren't able to travel, none of our team, and we weren't able to get inside and outside of, uh, of Zanzibar, uh, Tanzania. Um, and then finally, when we could, I sent the team in to, to take footage. We did it before and we did it after. Um, when they arrived, the team messaged me and they said, we're not in the right place. I said, what do you mean you're not in the right place? They said, we're not in the right place. This is impossible. This village has grown from, from 130, 150 people to nearly 300 people. People were actually moving in. I said, tell me more. They said, well, there was one shop uh, when we first arrived and now there's three. There was one pub when we first arrived and now there's two. And commerce is happening underneath these animals. So they went off, um, they went to the fishermen, they started to talk to the fishermen. And the fishermen had new nets, had new everything. And we started to discover that just with WhatsApp, just with connectivity, just with streetlight, they were able to reach out almost in real time to traders who otherwise would have had to come along a dusty, dirty road that they weren't sure if the fishermen smoked the fish or had not smoked the fish. And when you smoke fish, you lose a massive amount of value for that fish. Um, and yeah, they, 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 they had completely transformed their life. Um, and the, this is without the blockchain part. This is without the digital ID. This is without anything, you know? So it was a very exciting moment for us. 
Um, and I think you heard about the power as well uh, at that time too. So from the nine months that this proof of concept run, we would set it up until uh, we could get back there. Um, first two months, one of the one of the nodes wasn't working. So we understood why, because they'd been so so clever, um, really not that clever, but so clever to to take the copper wiring from the from the air nodes and start to light their houses and start to light the shops. And um, when we got back there, of course, they said, we'll never do that again. We're really sorry. And please, can you put this, the, the internet back up on this note? Because we, you know, we value internet just as much as we valued the, the light in our house. So it was a really, really, really the catalyst for, for everything at that moment. Because I knew that this would happen. I knew that we could connect the unconnected or the underserved. But I didn't, I didn't think the impact would be so big with just common tools that are out there. You know, people have phones in these villages. They have a SIM card in, this, in these villages, but what they don't have is um, a connection. They may have 2G, but 2G, you can't make a call like this. 3G, you can't make a call like this. It's uh, You can't really send pictures. It's very slow. All of a sudden, you provide very low-cost internet at high speeds, and yeah, everything changed. So that was, again, the catalyst for what took it to the next level. It's incredible to hear a story like that in the 21st century, right? I think we all take for granted the things that we have, but simply providing one streetlight or two streetlights on top of these poles, which they then took and basically gave electricity to the entire village, right? Which was not the intended purpose of what you were doing at all. Not at all. Shows a level of human ingenuity, even in people that maybe you would have assumed would not have the savvy or the tech knowledge to make it happen. But the very fact that they had access now allowed them to sell fish around the world to traders that maybe were not particularly going to come. You talked about also that it basically opened commerce after dark, right? I mean, can you talk yeah. about a bit more about what you saw on that side? Because in this village before, the minute it got dark, it was pitch black everywhere. It's on the equator. So 6 o'clock, 6.30, 7 o'clock, every single night on time, it gets dark, right? Um, and then people have small solar, if they're, if they're lucky enough, they have small solar home systems um, which they're able to generate a little bit of charge, but then the choice device for that is is not light. The choice device for that is your telephone because it's your entertainment device, right? So you charge your phone, you wait until it runs out, you go in the next morning, uh, the charge comes again, you go to work and you charge your phone, go to work. But what we saw was the seven o'clock at night, um, students, as an example, you know, they weren't able to study to study more. Um, ladies, they weren't able to feel safe walking from from one spot to another. Um, men, they weren't able to, to trade. They weren't able to, to do their things. And all of a sudden, underneath the air nodes, people were sitting and they were selling. They were putting out their, you know, their items and their food. And uh, we extended bedtime by, by, I don't know, five, six, seven hours. I don't know if that's the right thing to do or, or, or not, but um, for sure it changed. For sure it changed everything out there for, for that village. It's just such, a, such an incredible story to me. Really, I found it inspirational. And I think it also speaks to the ethos of crypto and blockchain, which obviously is sort of how your business evolved. Now, you talked about the fact that you put these nodes there to prove concept. What was the concept that you were proving? We haven't really talked about exactly what World Mobile actually does. So World Mobile is a new economic model for the placement of infrastructure where there isn't any. So a sharing economy, essentially. Um, we understood that we wanted to bring blockchain into play here, um, namely because from the 3.7 billion people that are unconnected, 3 billion also are unbanked, right? So we saw straight away that there was an opportunity there um, to bring digital IDs for actually mass adoption and for people to, to, to use digital IDs. And we saw a way that if you can prove and identify who you are, 
You then have access to all the value-added services beyond connectivity. Connectivity is just the first part, as you know. You know, we're using Zoom now. We use crypto every day. We we do many different things as soon as we're online. Online is just the basic part of uh, of, of connectivity. Um, so yeah, World Mobile. We we we. Uh, my history is is one in telecom. I've been in telecoms for for over twenty years. Uh, the last five, six, seven years, I was very heavily focused on. Um, what the mobile network operators should do and what they do. So uh, the way the telecom works, um, there's an open channel, right? Um, where the regulator, which is quite correct, needs to be able to access and chase down a terrorist or, uh, or, or some other bad guy or, or, or woman, not to be sexist. So, um, but with that great power um, came a lot of uh, problems. And those problems stemmed from the fact that WhatsApp Telegram, um, all over the top applications had taken the revenue from mobile networks, right? So voice all of a sudden became voice over IP. Voice over IP all of a sudden became free. Um, it's not free, but I'll, I'll explain Nothing's to you why. Nothing's free, right? <laughs> um, no. And, and then SMSs, huge industry, all of a sudden just completely dropped out of the waters. So the only thing telcos had left was us. So we were paying for our connectivity. Um, but because of this open channel, it, there was an opportunity to profile people. There was an opportunity to, to understand where people go, um, where, where people, when people sleep, um, when people wake up, who their friends, friends, friends are through through contact books, um, which uh, banking people have. If people use Bitcoin, um, it was too much. And I, before I started World Mobile, my first project into the blockchain was how do I become a mobile network operator that can actually put my hands up and say, hey. I don't profile or take your data. I don't want to be part of that. I think there's another way to make money uh, rather than doing so. And, and uh, you can take my word for it. You can just Google, you know, there's a lot of places where um, our information is getting sold or, or leaked and, and it shouldn't be. So that was my first kind of voyage into how do I do this? And then blockchain proved the immutability, transparency, and, and I could actually say, here's an algorithm, here's, here's a consensus that shows that I can't see anything, right? Your data is your data and that's where it belongs. If you choose to sell it, I don't recommend that because it's a digital imprint. But if you choose to sell it, you have the choice. If you choose to trade it, you have the choice. And moreover, um, if there's two data sets that are very similar, the one data set that was completely unique becomes not as valuable. So I kind of put, wanted to put the power back in our hands rather than in the, in the operator's hands and to stop this profiling and to stop those things. And then I thought, where can I do this? Right? <laughs> who cares about privacy? Who cares about data? Who started? Who hasn't started their journey online yet? So um, I called up a few friends and said, "Look, where, where are the least unconnected places?" And they said, "Well, Mick, you've been working in them, right?" I said, "Yeah, but you know, how many people? Uh, hundred million people, three hundred million people?" I said, "No, three billion people, half the planet." So I couldn't believe it. Uh, I called up another institution, the the GSMA, looked up their their, their documents, and it was true. Half the world was unconnected. So then I thought, okay, so if I can make this this model where I've been doing most of my life connecting borders and and connecting uh, people um, mostly for financial gain for companies, right? If I can do this, but then put the power back in the people's hands, not just with the privacy, but also let them earn part of um, of the of the connectivity, um, I can build a sharing economy. If I can build a sharing economy, I could do things different than Google, Facebook, and Microsoft have done, as an example. Many others have also tried to connect the unconnected. But alone, you can't do it. And you, you may be able to do one country, you may be able to do five countries, you may be able to do 10 countries in your lifetime, but you can't connect 3 billion people. So then I realized that I needed some way. So if you buy a piece of infrastructure, you need to know you're going to get paid for that infrastructure, right? 
how do I prove that? How do I prove that um, you, somebody's walked past your node, is utilizing your node, isn't gaming your node, you're not gaming it to, to work. So then we built uh, a proof of service protocol and, and uh, patented that and then started to implement that into the blockchain. And then we saw many other needs because I'd been in telecom for, for a long time. You know, the bureaucratic layers all of a sudden could become far easier with, with smart contracts. And then I figured that, hold on, I can separate a mobile core into multiple permission nodes where I can jail bad actors who, who, who mess around, but I can reward people for actually serving these value-added services, serving the, 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 the customer um, with all of the things that we need to be able to run a mobile network operator. So then came Air Nodes, first of all. They're the nodes that I talked about. They come in multiple different forms. You've got the balloon over here as well, which is a, a super Air Node. Um, or you can have just a, a, a Wi-Fi router that costs $1,000, $1,500 that is, is an Air Node. And there's in between as well, depending on whichever technology we're using. And then came Earth Nodes. And Earth Nodes were the, first of all, the connectivity layer is, is the Air Node. Um, and I knew that we could bring real world money because people are paying for data. They don't care if there's a, a bear market or a bull market. And I've, I've, I felt like all of a sudden we were immune to a lot of the, the, the problems that um, non-real world applications had. And then I started to, to work with the, with the Earth nodes and started to develop that, that infrastructure. And then I realized that because I'm in the industry, I needed to have something called uh, an e a Ether node, a regulated node that would sit in each country. And that would actually have the legal intercept and then servers storing the data that needs to be stored so that we we complied. Because if you don't comply, you can say you can say goodbye literally, right? Um a telecom is a really hard world and it's it's run by an oligopoly. Um and you have to make sure that you you do what they say um to a certain level. So that's the three different nodes that run in the in the world mobile chain. I just gotta ask you, is that oligopoly as powerful in Africa as it is elsewhere? Because it sounds it's, like it's, it's powerful. It's so powerful all around the world um, is uncomprehendable, but their power um, has left half the world offline. So it's not as powerful as the people. Uh, and that's what we're coming. And, and don't get me wrong, mo there's many mobile network operators who are very forward thinking, very open to collaboration, that don't do the things that I said. But again, um, how do we know they don't do those things, right? Um, if you look at Spectrum, Spectrum is the, the 3G, 4G, 5G, um, thing that you use for your for your telephone, right? The different bands. There's probably more than a trillion dollars of unused spectrum sitting out there right now where mobile network operators have just bought it just to keep the smaller players out. But the barrier to entry is so has been so, so high that you just can't you can't come in and, and, and compete in these markets. So that's why we're not competing in those markets. That's why we're coming in to complement those markets. But actually our main main focus is in the unconnected and undisturbed areas. And technology has come to such a such a way right now that you're actually able to buy off the shelf hardware, flash it or add something to it um, and effectively do what would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars for a unit for a couple of K these days. Software is, is, is on the next level and um, it's, it's the right time. It's the, the convergence of uh, mindset, time and, and technology. And you're able to do that without necessarily electricity with solar power, backup batteries, and then connectivity, is it through satellite that you give people the internet? Uh, how, how do you actually uh, well, connect them to that? Preferably is through fiber, because satellite doesn't have great throughput. It's really expensive. Um, it's uh, limited to how many locations you can have because the beam is traveling. The low Earth orbit satellites, um, for example, they're traveling really fast. And uh, it's not working for, for, for more than half the world right now. 
So preferably it's fiber. Now the Chinese have done something great. Um, not only sent a balloon over America, uh, which isn't great by the way, uh, so it's very, uh, all of a sudden I'm a balloon expert. People are calling I me mean, up saying, I, you're a balloon? I was going to ask you about that later. I mean, you, you, at least yours are tethered, right? They won't float yeah, away okay, and get shot down by like an F-22, right? You got it. But the, the, they've done a really great job in laying down fiber. It's just the fiber doesn't go to the last mile. So we have very um, innovative ways uh, to be able to send that fiber to the last mile. It could be using TV white space, um, which is uh, the old analog things that you had on your roof, those funny looking aerials, you know, that, that are not used in Africa, which is a free spectrum. It could be free space optics, which is really cool stuff. You know, Google um, were the pioneers of this uh, with OneWeb. And satellites talking to each other via laser beams. But those laser beams can be brought down to ground. Um, and I think it's actually ultraviolet. And they're able to, to span uh, 20 kilometers at 20 gigabytes a second. So all of a sudden, the last mile is actually reachable. But the problem with the last mile is that if you haven't got something to deliver the connectivity of that last mile, um, it's very difficult as for, a, for a mobile network operator to, to maintain that infrastructure, to pay for that infrastructure, and to keep that infrastructure secure. So that's where it comes in the sharing economy again. If you bring the the village and they invest um, or somebody remotely invests into this village to, to provide connectivity, if they're earning from it, it's their livelihood. Who damages, unless you're a bit crazy, who damages your own livelihood? You don't. You maintain it. You look after it. You, you make sure it's up. You make sure it's running, especially if every day you're looking at your phone and you're seeing dollars come in or, or, or the local Tanzanian shillings or whatever, whatever it is. So having this sharing economy all of a sudden de-risked a lot for us because CapEx was covered by... Um, a party that was interested in getting into the telecoms industry that couldn't before uh, for $10,000, $20,000 as an example. Uh, OPEX was um, covered by the people who owned the real estate who said, hey, I'll have that on my roof or I'll have that next to me or I'll put, I'll put the solar panels on my roof and make sure that's maintained. And if it's broken, I'll call you or send you a message. And all of a sudden you had this magic formula that mobile network operators didn't have, right? And actually, you know, Helium did something very similar to this. Uh, we came out at, at, a, at a similar time, if not slightly before them, but they went in the IoT route, right? So, and they went on a, a different kind of incentive model. Whereas we're, you know, we're saying that all the people that are running inwards should receive a, a fiat currency because what's important about making an investment, um, an investment into yourself or investment into infrastructure, you want to return that money, right? So we moved the token totally away from that front layer of connectivity. And, and said, look, this is, you're going to pay money. You're going to earn money. The person who's hosting this house is going to earn money. And World Mobile is going to take a small bit of that money in order to continue our operations and, and grow. I can't speak deeply, obviously, to the Helium business model, but my impression there was that they were competing in the first world. Everybody I know who was passionate about Helium was a wealthy person who saw an opportunity to make a bunch of money putting you know, a bobcat on top of their roof, but that wasn't offering what you are, which is, you know, service it, it, it to people on, who don't have it. it. It was it was a cool idea, you know, but are FedEx going to pay you um, when you drive past them and are they going to plug in, your, your, you know, your module for IoT? What they did prove is that people have a real interest in the sharing economy or people do have yes. an interest in, in hosting infrastructure and getting, and getting paid for that. Um, I think it was a great idea and it really did take off. There are a million notes. Um, but the problem is, if you don't bring revenue into the network, what carries on to incentivize people to to run those nodes and to put up more nodes? So World Mobile kind of took a different approach than any of the other DYs and said, look, first of all, we understand telecom. Um, second of all, let's build a business model that actually brings real revenue into these nodes 
And by being compatible with the mobile network operators, by allowing them to onload, offload, and what roam uh, or neutralized onto our networks. And um, I think we, you know, we took our time to do it, but I think we we finally have a model now, uh, for example, in Zanzibar, that is probably making more than the entire helium network combined. And that's with 250 nodes. That's incredible. So where would you say you are on the spectrum of, you know, from very early beginning, first person getting connected to your entire vision? How many people right now are connecting and using a phone on World Mobile? How many nodes do you have out there? How much coverage do you have as far as sheer mileage? Well, we have around 30,000 customers in Zanzibar, um, and that's contained. That's quite controlled by, by us. Right. We've been fine-tuning the sharing economy. Again, the, the part where people put down a node and then make money from that node. That's the most key part for this, right? Because that's the incentive that, that keeps these nodes safe and keeps these nodes running. So we've been doing that for around a year and a half, two years. Um, we're now in a position where it's copy and paste. So now we're moving, and it's copy and paste the technology, right? Um, every yeah. country has different regulation, different regulators. Right, but you know the roadmap yeah, of how you can physically go into this place, what you need to put in, what you need to offer them, and you know that that will then expand and work. And, and building different types of air nodes as well, because one air node for one place may not be the suitable for another air node for another place, right? So where you've got access to unlicensed spectrums, you try and utilize those as much as you can, because ultimately when you buy spectrum, who's paying for that? You're offloading it onto your customer, right? So you're increasing their price because... You're not buying this, and this is not a charity. Um, so, for example, the village was was fiber into Wi-Fi, um, and then we had a backhaul that was running from microwave. Right, that was really the most inexpensive way to to provide connectivity there. But in Kenya, we're we're playing with something called TV white space, and TV white space can go direct to handset. In the USA, it's worth billions of dollars to to the mobile network operators, and that's what they've paid for it. In Kenya, um, they and Mozambique, uh, where we're, we're trialing this, it's it's uh, unlicensed, right? Uh, whether it will remain unlicensed for forever is 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 uh, something that we don't know. Um, but certainly for the next ten years, fifteen years, it, it will. Um, and then you've got CBRS in the United States, where we also have presence, and we also have some nodes up, and we're also working with uh, mobile network operators and MVNOs. And CBRS is awesome, but CBRS um, won't be awesome once everybody's got CBRS. Then you need to pair that with a license spectrum. So that's what we've been really doing: is testing the the model of the sharing economy bringing in revenue into those nodes, starting to pay the people, starting to have the customers that are, they're actually paying, at the same time running with these different nodes and understanding what we can do or what price points we can do and what's the most most effective. So now we're actually ready. Now the, the last three months we've been um, in Kenya, in Mozambique, in Nigeria, uh, in Tanzania, mainlands, in, in Zanzibar, uh, and also in the United States, also in the United Kingdom, also in uh, certain countries in, in, in Asia, uh, Southeast Asia. So. The model is ready to to explode, um, and I think we in the next three to three to nine months we're going to see something that is um, the trajectory can be can be crazy in terms of adoption, because who, who doesn't want to earn money? Who doesn't want to earn extra money for putting something up on their on their real estate or for for maintaining something? And when you're doubling the national income, um, uh, as an example, for a Zanzibari by them holding a, a, a node, they don't have to do anything with the node. They have to make sure it doesn't get stolen. They have to make sure that it's up and up and running. And I assure you, the first thing as soon as it's broken, they're calling us immediately. Please, there's an issue. And you know, as a mobile network operator, I've got to send trucks out. I've got to send. I've got to take care of all of that myself. I've got to deal with um, potential uh, misappropriation of property um, because people people uh, don't value a generator if they can't connect to the the, the tower that the generator is powering. But when when it's their own, 
um, all of a sudden, uh, just like their car or just like their front porch or just like their job, there's a value to it, right? And that's kind of been, been the magic. So one on the technical side um, and two, getting the sharing economy right. So now that it's copy and paste, as you said, is it just a matter of how many people you can hire and train and how fast you can get them out on the ground? Because I have to imagine that going to all of these remote places in Africa carries with it some unique challenges every single time. And so you'd really have to be very well-versed and experienced to go do that, which means you're sending one team over here, they have to establish it, then sending them somewhere else. How many teams do you have on the ground and how hard is that to scale? We've got around 60 or 70 people in the continent, uh, African continent right now. Um, we first started this by, and this is four or five years ago when I knew this was possible, uh, I brought together a regulation team. So I, I called up the people that I knew and said, look, I've got an idea. Uh, half of them said, this is crazy. You're never going to be able to do it. Half of them said, you know what? Although I'm living in Switzerland and working for an institution, I, I originate from Zimbabwe. I originate from Kenya and my family still don't have connectivity. I want to hear your idea out. And this wasn't just any, any old people. These were people that were at the end of their careers in these institutions. Uh, regulators, for example, Charles Njeroge, um, Director General of Kenya, um, Director General of the East African Communities. Uh, he heard the idea. He, he challenged me on a lot of different things. And then within two weeks, three weeks, he called me up and said, I'm in, pro bono. Um, you know, let, let's go. So then we, we had like one of the, one of the world's foremost um, uh, pioneers in regulation um, who, who was backing us up. Uh, and, then, and then we brought in other people, right? We brought in like Chris Watson, who was uh, uh, a lawyer um, uh, who is in, in telecommunications, uh, very well regarded. You know, he's been there since the very beginning. Uh, and then he was in. And then we brought in Rene Poisson, who was from JP Morgan and 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 uh, uh, done many, many, many deals. And then and then we brought in more people like Mike Nelly. And, and so that was the formation, was making sure that we, we could navigate these waters. Because although I have at such scale, I hadn't, right? So I needed the people that had. So that was the first point. Then the next point was, okay, how do we train up local people to support the sharing economy? So then we started to train up local engineers. So we, we brought 15, 20 engineers. We took a team from, from the UK and from Spain and, and sent them to Zanzibar. And we trained up local people so that they could support when there was issues on the grounds. And then, of course, there's the training of the people who are hosting this infrastructure, right? They're buying an aerial. They need to put it on the roof. It needs to be certified. They, and so we, own, we have around 70 people, but actually we have around 400, 500 people in Zanzibar that are part of this shared economy right now that are, that are part of World Mobile. Um, then we have a lot of engineers, as in uh, developers, uh, that are sitting in, in the UK and Spain and in Portugal, um, and then a few, a few around the world. We have a presence in Dubai, where, where I met you. Um, we have a lab in, in San Diego, James Tag, uh, the inventor of the, the touchscreen telephone, um, one of the inventors of the touchscreen telephone, but the one that won, um, made the first over voice over IP call over a mobile network. And, it was hard to, it was hard initially to bring these people in but as soon as they saw the impact from from this village and as soon as they saw that i wasn't just talking the talk i could actually walk the walk they're in they're in big time and and now now what my world is around 130 140 people big absolutely incredible so you you talked about the first experience in the fishing village in zanzibar and how you saw that completely transformed this small village at scale, what's the biggest vision of how this can transform life for the continent of Africa, for example, or any place that's been disconnected in the past? I mean, beyond 
giving them phone access or giving them a financial incentive if they set up a node. For the average person who's just on the ground living in these places, what does this look like when you've fully deployed? Africa was so interesting to me, um, not least because it was the, the least connected place on, on the planet as a continent, um, but because of the average age of the people. So 18 and a half years old was the is the average age. Um, they've skipped the generation of PCs. They all have mobile telephones. They have 300 million mobile money wallets um, as, as, as a leading continent in terms of mobile money. Um, and Pesa in, 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 from Safaricom in Kenya is one of the greatest successes of all fintech um, and brings in, adds percents to the GDP every, every, every year. So for me, um, Africa was not somewhere that I looked upon like Live Aid and Bob Geldof, was somewhere that I thought, okay, this is where the opportunity is to adopt this kind of technology. But don't forget where, where you live in the United States of America, 30% of the landmass is uncovered and 10% of the population is, is not connected, right? And then other people have really shitty internet. So World Mobile has been built to have two major functions. One is the rural problem, right? The rural problem is where you've got great expanses, people spread out, a lack of infrastructure, and you need to provide connectivity. And there comes this aerostat, right? So this aerostat you can consider as a big aerial, uh, sorry, a big um, tower. Uh, and then underneath, we stick a payload. That payload covers IoT and it covers uh, long range, long range very, very well, something that other people haven't really done before. And that's some of our unique IP. But then you've got the Swiss cheese problem, right? Where you've got holes in the network. So you're going from one place to another, your phone drops out, your Zoom tries to reconnect, your whatever it may be. And, and, and in some areas, you know, you'll have that very often. So World Mobile, the sharing economy that we've been fine tuning and the technology has been built to address both, right? So we, So where can this go? Um, the vision is for a billion people uh, before 2030, way before 2030. I've stood up at the United uh, at the United Nations, the Inter International Telecommunications Union, and and pledged and sworn that this is this is something that I'm going to do. Um, and it's a big challenge, massive, but somebody's got to do it, right? And nobody's doing it. And Google, Facebook, Microsoft—they tried, and and they're, they're still trying. But it doesn't matter how much money you've got. It matters how many people you've got. It matters. We cannot fix the, the problem, but together we're unstoppable. So this effectively will give everyone access to both a phone and to the internet. Do you see other creative uses like that village where people are going to probably expand on what you've put on the ground? I mean, are you already seeing other villages run with this and turn it into yeah. electricity? Or are you going to have to kind of stop them from... Splitting your we copper did. wires and sending them out to everybody. There's a whole house. regulation between electricity, right? So, you know, right. we could be providing mini grids and that could be something in the future where, where, where we are, where people are also, but right now the focus is connectivity. So if we can get that pipe of connection there, then all of a sudden, boom, you know, the whole world opens. How did you find crypto, right? You didn't find it in a newspaper. You found it online. Yeah. Um, how do people, you know, some of these kids that have never been to school, 14 years old, and all of a sudden they know more than someone that went to university before, you know, before the internet. Um, how do we take the opportunities into our hands without actually being connected? So how big this can be? Um, I saw something on Twitter the other day. Some guy was saying they saw our prices, our good luck getting rich node operators. And it was like, right, this is how small-minded people are. They don't realize that the internet is just a tool for the further value-added services that people would take, banking, insurance, education. You know, MediHealth is a massive industry across the continent of Africa, and Africa's not very connected. Um, Again, banking, you know, do you go and take a $20 loan from a guy on the corner of the street with a 10% interest recurring every every week, um, accumulating, 
Um, or do you jump into the DeFi protocol uh, where liquidity pools can offer you, you know, one, two, three percent um, for a month? People will be very happy with, right? Um, the opportunity when you have internet just is is endless, and it's it's even more. You know, every day it grows. So this, I mean, this impact yeah. is this is the impact, man. That that that's what it is. It's, and you can look anywhere cool today if we didn't have the right. internet, right? And you can look anywhere in the world, obviously, where the internet has spread to every corner of the United States, first world, wherever, and see exactly what's going to happen in Africa. India. It's not, like, I guess you have the roadmap already, right? I mean, it, it, this, sure. they're just behind. It's a renaissance. It's an industrial revolution. I mean, we've seen what access to open information has done all over the world, and they just don't have it. And when, you know, you probably had it as a kid in your house. I, I lived in the countryside, had really slow 56 kilobyte internet. Oh, dude, I'm 46 years government. old. I didn't know what the internet was until I was like uh, well into college, but yeah. <laughs> okay, so, um, but in, uh, India is a perfect example. You know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, India was in a different place than it is today, right? All of a sudden, uh, Bahati Airtel, um, a guy called Manoj, uh, one of the foremost great CEOs um, and good people on, on this planet, he put 300,000 villages online, right? And when I say online, gave them meaningful internet, not just uh, banking and, and whatever, gave them the ability to be able to jump into conferences, jump into WebEx, jump into seminars, jump, you know, and all of a sudden, what's the biggest gig economy in the world? Right? It's in, in 10 years. It changed everything. Give people, give people very fast internet at affordable price, and they will, they will take opportunities into their own hands. So that's why the, the opportunity with them, with, um, Africa, the continent of Africa is so exciting. Yeah, the amount of developers and programmers that have come out of India in the last 10 years is a testament to that, right? Phenomenal, right? I, I mean, it seems like half the crypto projects on the planet are coming out of India at this point. So, and that, as to your point, could have never happened in the past without this level of connectivity that they now have. So you're obviously focused on Africa but you talked about a kind of surprising stat, I think, is that a lot of people in the rural parts of America and other quote-unquote first world countries also lack access. Are those areas that you can go in and compete with the you know oligopoly that you described before? Or do they sort of still have their uh, presence there very strong? Well, the FCC, for United, for United States of America, for example, again, I'm not going to name any names, but you can just Google the fine you know, the fines that people or the mobile network operators have received because they're not utilizing their spectrum. They're not utilizing their spectrum because they don't want to, they can't. Legacy infrastructure, legacy business models, it doesn't, it doesn't work for them. Otherwise they'd be doing it. So if you, if you take like um, a typical mobile network operator, um, you go out, you raise 600, $700 million, you spend $200 million on licensing, you spend 300, $400 million on infrastructure, uh, you then hire a big team and you start charging people. That, that's how that's how telecoms works, right? Uh, do a bit of marketing, get your consumers online, deal with the churn and 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 bring on customers and try and find that loyalty there. Um, it's changed. It's changed. It's changed. There's real estate that people can put these things up and there's new models being built like us that, uh, that can allow everyone to be involved in it. So it's not competition. It's actually, uh, they may see it as that, you know, some people, but... Um, it's actually complementing because mobile network operators need to fulfill their obligations as well. They need to be able to provide connectivity for the spectrum that they own, and they have to provide 70% and 80% coverage. So they need the help, right? They may not admit it, and certainly five, 10 years ago, they were not admitting it, but now they're very open to 
to thinking about, okay, so if you can bring a network that's compatible, that has a good uptime, that works, why wouldn't we offload onto you? Why wouldn't we let our customers act as a neutral host so that they've got connectivity? Nothing worse than paying the mobile network operator for a signal, you drive into a place, you've got no signal, right? The, the, the mobile network operator doesn't want that to happen. It's just not feasible with their legacy business models um, for, for, for them to go out and roll out. So it's more of a compliment. And, and World Mobile, it, started, it was born in Africa, it started in Africa. Um, but actually, the name is World Mobile. So there's, there's every country in the world, uh, bar a few, Liechtenstein um, and, and another, a few other small countries, they suffer from this problem of either rural, rural connectivity issues or the Swiss cheese problem. So we've built the model to, to, to fit both. I mean, there's even spots in New York City, suburban areas where you drive through and your phone cuts yeah, out. Yeah, you got to fade the call. Again. It literally happens everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. It's like a, you, it's, it's, you don't even think about it because you just accept it, right? But they're getting pressure from it and they should be providing a service when they're charging you $70 or $50 or $80 a month. Um, or you're paying for their infrastructure. You're paying for everything. You should have connectivity <laughs> everywhere. Absolutely. So I'm interested in hearing how you actually discovered crypto and blockchain. Was it before all of this or did it become the solution after you started putting these in on the ground? Are you like an old Bitcoiner from 2010 and we didn't even know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So um, I was very fascinated with Bitcoin um, as soon as I saw it, uh, as soon as it had come out 10, 10 years ago for me. Um, And then I was really interested in, in, um, how the cryptography worked and I had some great people around me. Uh, but then I was in telecoms and I was trying to find an application for telecoms for a long time. And there just wasn't really a suitable application. And, um, but as it evolved, and then I thought about the privacy and I thought about the bank and the unbanked and the old adages that people have, I'm like, hold on, this is the real world. This is the one, this is the one that actually bring and drive mass adoption. This is the one that brings money in, um, rather than a Ponzi. Uh, which I'm not saying all projects are, there's some incredible technology out there, but you, you know as well as me um, that usually it's the rich getting richer in crypto and then the, the guys getting shat on uh, on the way down, right? Excuse my French, my kids do go to a French school. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it took about five years for me to be convinced that this could work. And it took the, the evolution of Ethereum um, and to see how that was working. And I thought, okay, there's there's a, a real use case here, and there's a real way to bring real world money, trillions of dollars, because telecoms is a is a multi trillion dollar industry, um, into crypto, and uh, that was it. I was I was set. Yeah, and it I mean it aligns exactly with what you were already building and working on, so it makes sense that that's how you would adopt it. Now, if, for anyone who's listening on audio, they can't see that. Uh, balloon over your shoulder, which we mentioned before, the super air node, it says 70 kilometers coverage radius. Yes. Where, where'd you come up with the balloon? I've just, I got to know. And, and where do you build, build them? How do you deploy these? Is that like one person owns it and it's coming up from their land or is it a shared? Uh, how's that work? We, we believe that, look, to cover the whole of Kenya, um, we take around 80 balloons, right? Um, That's not bad. No. And each balloon is around $2 million. If you wanted to cover the whole of Kenya with um, physical towers and lay fiber to them and power every single one, you're talking about spending billions and billions and billions of dollars. Right? For $16 million. Uh, well, if, if you For you, you could do it with, yeah. 
Oh, so, so yeah, so yeah, you so. could 160, 200 million. 160, you said 80, not eight, right? 80 balloons. Yes, yeah, got yeah. it. Then, yeah. then you've got the antennas, right? So the antennas is our own IP. Um, they're long range. They can go further than, than, than any other antenna out there right now. Um, and then you've got all the different things that sit in those payloads. So, you know, if you take helium, for example, it has to have multiple um, nodes out there to give that coverage. If you go on the map, well, this can provide coverage for IoT for 130, 140 kilometers, as an example. So the balloon is like a super cool tower um, that looks cool. It's tethered to the grounds. Um, you need permission to, to, to fly anything over 300 meters, but we're flying at 300 meters, which is most often considered a kite. You can't, of course, put it inside the, a flight bath or an airport because there'll be That's a, a nice a disaster there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've got to be quite smart. You have to you have to conform to the regulations, but they're they're pretty cool. And um, they sit on a base station. The base station has a swivel. Uh, the swivel stops the, the the wires from getting all tangled around. Uh, you press a button, they go up. You press a button, they come down. Uh, you usually have two balloons side by side, or potentially a drone to cover for when you need to do maintenance. Maintenance is once every two weeks. Um, if someone shoots it, they're pressurized, so it doesn't just fall out of the sky. It has a very gradual drop. It uses helium. I tried asking for hydrogen, but there was a disaster once that uh, everybody's everybody Hindenburg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we we we're not quite there with hydrogen yet. Um, but what's really fascinating about these these balloons is right now um, they're a solution to connect the unconnected, to provide connectivity to the underserved, to bring football stadiums um, massive, massive connectivity when they need it, to have huge throughput. But the same payload that we've developed for 300 meters is actually destined to go up to 20,000 meters. 20,000 meters um, is, is, is really exciting because the higher up you go, the more you can see, right? And if you've got high gain antennas that conform and work with regulation, you can push out somewhere in the region of 350 kilometers uh, radius to 450 kilometer radius from one of these. So we're preparing now for the future. It's just why would we why would we wait to connect to everybody uh, five or six or seven years, which is potentially the time it may take to, to bring stratospheric stuff out. Um, Google Loon, for example, that's the stratospheric, right? But they they had big envelopes. I think they were called clovers. Um, and they were traveled by the wind. In the stratosphere, you've got 27 miles per hour, approximately the, the wind. Uh, lightning comes from below, not, not from above. Um, it's corrosive. Yes, yeah, crazy. It's corrosive. And you, you send something up, you don't get it back down. Unless you're American, you shoot it with a missile and you, because you think it's Chinese. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of where we're going. But those, those airships are not, are not motorized. They don't have um, engines. They don't have a way to stay stationary right now. So we, we actually do have some relationships and uh, exclusivity partnerships with people that are building airships right now um, that, will, that will take our, our payload up there. And that's really, you know, it has multiple purposes, but the best purpose it has is, is connectivity. And you would be able to do the United States of America with six of those. It's incredible. You, I mean, you said you sat down at the UN and promised them bold claim that you were going to give these hundreds of millions, if not billions of people connectivity. How long did you tell them it was going to take? I told them, quote, way before 2030. Way before. I like that. That's, that, that gives us a range. <laughs> so I, I, think that, I think that we can be looking, you know, this is something that we've built to have explosive growth, right? Um, in crypto, uh, it's hard to see past a week. The communities, um, their, their expectations are massive. Um, and I love that because it keeps pressure on us. And um, I like big expectations. This is a big vision. Uh, but it's built to have explosive growth. So I think, you know, two, three years away, we're talking hundreds of millions, if not more customers. 
Eventually, Absolutely. it's not me. Eventually, it doesn't. It doesn't rely on Mickey to to coordinate this and roll it out. Eventually, it relies on me to be able to get the licenses in the countries, for me to make sure the backhauls and everything is set up there, to me to make sure that the the teams that they're needed to support the sharing economy are there. But it becomes people. It becomes you know we built tools to allow people just to stick something on their roof to match with yeah. somebody who's willing to pay for that, to match with somebody who's willing to to to, to host that. Um, so yeah, eventually it doesn't rely on Mickey and World Mobile. Eventually it can, it can grow on its own. I just go online, I buy the infrastructure that I need. I put it in my backyard and I'm up and running. Yep. That's it. And then you, you could buy it for yourself, um, to fix your own problem, but you could buy it because you want to be part of the telecommunications industry, right? That you couldn't have been part of before for $20,000 or $15,000 or a million and a half, $2 million like the Aristat, right? Um, I want to fly one of those over my house, but I don't think they'd let me do it. I think my neighbors would get super pissed if I flew a air balloon. I've asked to be strapped to the bottom of one so I can get the real bird's eye view of what's going on down there, but <laughs> they, they won't let me because I'm too valuable for now. Is there anything that I missed that you want to share I didn't ask you about that you're excited about before I let you go? Um, how, you know, thank you very much for having me on. We did become friends in, in Dubai. I'm looking forward to hang out with you next time I see you. And if you want me back on any time uh, for further developments, which there will be many. I'll be yes, here. you're welcome anytime. So more importantly, if somebody wanted to actually do this right now, how can they get in touch with you guys? How can they find out more? Where, where can they go? Jump into our Telegram. Uh, the more technical people who want to understand how to run the test net and, and start to prepare for, for the big traffic that's inbounds, uh, jump into our Discords, uh, follow our Twitters, our socials. And I'm, I'm regularly on Twitter, uh, regularly on Telegram. So just reach out to me, Mickey at worldmobile.io, and I'll put you in touch with the right person. I can't wait to see what you build, man. Really excited about it. Like I said, it was truly inspirational. And uh, what I thought was going to be three minutes sitting on a couch talking to a couple dudes ended up in a few hours of going down this rabbit hole. So you know that I'm genu genuinely interested in, and I really just can't wait to see uh, the entire world connected with those balloons flying over Scott, everyone's appreciate houses. Appreciate you, man. Thank, Thank you for your support.